I want to speak to you today on a song of praise that we find in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Uh, we've already begun our study in the Gospel of Luke from the physician and the faithful servant of the Lord who has provided by his own words an orderly account of the birth, the life, and the ministry of Jesus, our Lord. And we've already thought about the birth of John the Baptist, how his birth was foretold and anticipated. And then the birth of Jesus was also foretold by the angel Gabriel. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to visit Elizabeth, the mother-to-be of John the Baptist, both of them having believed what the messenger had told them in anticipation of what God was about to do, there was rejoicing. And that brings us to our passage today in Luke chapter 1. We're going to read here in just a few moments from verse 46 through verse 56. This section of scripture has been referred to as uh, Mary's Magnificat, uh, referencing the Latin uh, that the focus here is the soul of Mary magnifying the Lord making the Lord's mercy and grace and his power known. And we all know that songs are powerful. Uh, Luke uses songs at very pivotal times in his gospel. Uh, in my estimation, it's a little bit early to be playing the Christmas songs. Maybe you've been playing them since August or September. But songs are meaningful to us. We all have favorites. We have songs not just at Christmas time, but songs that point us to other times in our lives where it'll draw up a memory or it'll make us think about something that we've not thought about for a long time. And Christmas songs are particularly powerful. And this is the greatest Christmas song of all. Of the top 10 Christmas songs currently in pop culture, uh, it's my understanding that only one of those is actually about Christmas. It's actually about the theme of the birth of Jesus, and that would be the little drummer boy. It's the only one in the top 10 of the most played songs that's actually anything that has to do with a biblical theme. Mary's song, on the other hand, is saturated with scripture. Someone said that it is a collage of biblical allusions, meaning that there are multiple references to the scripture right here in these few short verses that we're going to read. In fact, there are 12 references to the Old Testament that show us just how significant this event was. There's a, a connection here to Hannah's song uh, when she dedicated her son Samuel back to the Lord. There are references to Psalm 22 and Psalm 25 and Psalm 44 and 89 and 98 and 147. There are also references uh, to both Isaiah and Job. So I think what we can glean from that is that Mary was someone who was well acquainted with the Word of God. And this direct word that she received from God in the form of the messenger, the angel, who brought this word to her, uh, was something that she would have, in a sense, anticipated, but certainly not in her own life. So when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's tying these pieces together, and she's about to remind us of some things that the prophets had already said, that the psalmists had already indicated, and now it's coming to full view in this miraculous event of what God was going to do in her life. Now, we talk about magnifying something. There are a couple different ways that we can magnify something. We can take something that is very small, and we can put it under a magnifying glass, and we can make something that is very small appear to be a lot bigger than it is. 
Or we can take a telescope and we can look at something that's very far away that appears to be small and bring it into view for what it really is. In this sense, when we say that our soul and Mary's soul magnifies the Lord, she's not making God bigger than he is. She's drawing the focus in so that we can see God for who he really is, so that he can be magnified and exalted in his character and his nature and and that we would know him and understand him by faith. So I begin reading here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. Uh, Remember this, we began through this study. I told you that I was going to read through the Christmas story, at least from the New King James Version, uh, just for familiarity of the words that we've all heard so many times over and over. If we've been in church, we've been Christians for very long. Uh, So I'm going to continue in that theme, and I'll be reading this morning from the New King, and then I'll carry that on through uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, and then I'll probably go back uh, to our regular version of the Scripture. Now, here's what the Bible says, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, verse 53, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And then verse 56, and Mary remained with her, being Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her house. How does this song of praise magnify the Lord? And how do we magnify the Lord with our lives? First of all, the Lord is magnified with a song of salvation. He's magnified with a song of salvation. Verse 47 says, In my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So here's Mary. She begins her song with praise for nothing less than her salvation. She is recognizing that she's been called by God to deliver the Son of God into the world. Remember, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, at just the right time according to the will of God, and Mary was the vessel. She was to be used by God for the miracle of the incarnation. But she also was someone who needed salvation. She recognized that. And in a sense, Mary answers the idea that somehow she was perfect, the Roman Catholic teaching that she never had sin. She was perpetually sinless in some way. That's not what the Bible teaches. When she says here that God, the Lord, is her Savior, she's telling us that she needs salvation. She needs the grace of God. And by the way that Mary knew the scripture, we can certainly assume that she lived her life with an anticipation of the coming of Messiah. And now his arrival was at hand. You remember the name Jesus means God is salvation. This is the name that God the Father gave to God the Son. And it tells us the purpose for which Jesus came. 
Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke will tell us just a little bit further in, in chapter 2 and verse 10 and 11, the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So the message of the incarnation is the message of salvation. We cannot miss this. We cannot keep in our mind's eye, Jesus as the baby in the manger, as beautiful of a story as that is, and as touching of a thought as that is, Jesus came for one purpose, and that was to seek and to save the lost. So the Lord is magnified with a song of salvation. Now, there are a lot of false teachings out there about what salvation is, uh, what I would refer to as false lights that are leading people to the wrong place. And I read an illustration from uh, the 1800s of, about something that took place off of the coast of Australia. There's this particularly busy shipping route that had a peninsula, and the peninsula is still there, but the peninsula was jutting out into the sea. And as a result of this particularly dangerous area, ships could not see it, and they would just run into it and sink. And there was all kinds of havoc and chaos. So the shipping agents who were responsible for this particular part of the world decided that they were going to build a lighthouse. And this lighthouse was going to serve as a warning to steer people away from the peninsula so they'd not wreck their ships and people perish along the way. So they commissioned this particular man to go and to build this lighthouse. And the, the place that he chose to build the lighthouse, interestingly, was not the best place. In fact, when they went to look at the location that he had chosen, he chose what was easy to build on in an area where the materials were easily available rather than what was best. But for some reason, they approved it, and building began. He builds this lighthouse, and rather than the light steering people away from danger and away from this peninsula and safely along their shipping route, it actually drew people in it drew the ships in, and over a period of time, there were more than two dozen documented shipwrecks that were attributed to the fact that this lighthouse was giving the wrong information and leading people in the wrong direction. It was eventually torn down. But even so, because it had been marked on the map, they still continued to have problems years after that. Now, here's my point about these false lights of salvation. They can appear to be leading us in the right direction. They can appear to be taking us to the destination that we want to get to. But if we're not careful, if we listen to anything other than what the Bible teaches about salvation, we can end up in the wrong place. Sometimes people teach a salvation that is nothing more than works. It's the attitude of what we can do to save ourselves. You say, really? Are there people who believe that? There are people who believe that all across this country for sure, who would tell you if you were to ask them about why they would go to heaven when they die, and I'm talking about people that come and sit in churches, they would tell you, well, I'm a good person. I've been good to my family. I've been faithful to my job. I do some good things at the church. And you get this good person kind of answer. That is nothing more than a works 
salvation. Or there are people who add on extra things and say that if you do this work, then you'll be okay. You'll be right with God. That is a false light. There's also the false light of universalism. Universalism teaches that eventually God is love and he's going to save everybody because he's love. Certainly he's not going to send anybody to the consequence of hell. And let me just remind you, as I often do, not everybody's going to rest in peace. Not everybody's going to the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Only those whose faith is in the Savior. But I also want to give you another warning at this point. Sometimes we act like practicing universalists. Say, what do you mean in a Baptist church? We're saved. We believe the gospel. We believe in the word. How do we act like practicing universalists when we don't share the gospel? Because one of two things is true. If we do not share the gospel with other people, either we believe that it's not really necessary and everybody's going to go to heaven, or we just don't care. What happens to people when they die? And either of these is a practicing form of universalism. Another false light would be legalism in terms of strict adherence to a list of rules where we're somehow trying to measure up to God when the Bible says that our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags. These are all false lights that will lead us astray, but Jesus is the light of the world and he is the only light that can be trusted. Salvation is deliverance from sin to God. It is forgiveness for our sin through faith in Jesus by the grace of God. So when Mary proclaims Jesus as her Savior, she looks to God for her salvation. It's a reminder of just how helplessly and hopelessly lost we are unless God intervenes on our behalf. And God took the initiative in the incarnation. And what we do is we respond in faith. We receive salvation by hearing the good news fully trusting in Jesus and placing our hope in him. So Mary's hope of salvation rested in God and his promises. Her hope was not in her own ability to make herself acceptable to God. The Lord is magnified with a song of salvation. And then second, the Lord is magnified with a song of surrender. He's magnified with a song of surrender. Verse 48 the Bible says, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. Now, depending on your translation, it either says maidservant or handmaiden or servant, which is the essence of it. And this is a statement of surrender to God. Mary's words are words of surrender to the greatness of God. And the idea is that God looked down on Mary in the lowly status that she had. Her lowly state was certainly related to the fact that she was a young woman, she didn't have any particular standing in society. There was nothing that made her particularly important. And yet here she is yielding herself to God in an, in an act of surrender, recognizing God as her Savior and humbling herself in the sight of the one who is greater. And I think Mary models humility for us. Could you imagine be give, being given the uh, amazing and honorable position to be the mother of the Son of God. For hundreds of years, Israel had been awaiting the Messiah and his arrival. 
Since the time of Abraham, when God made the covenant with Abraham, that he was going to make of him a great nation, and through that great nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Even all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 15, where there was a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. There's this, been this building anticipation of the coming of Messiah. And now Mary is the vessel through whom this is going to take place. And the Bible describes for us her humility, her lowliness of mind, which is an attitude of surrender. It's a song of surrender to God. You know, ultimately, that's how the Bible describes humility. It's a lowliness of mind. Um, It is an internal posture, which leads to an outward demeanor. So let's think about this in reverse. If we encounter people who are prideful, outwardly, it didn't start with their outward presentation of themselves. It started in their mind and in their heart, and then it was displayed in how they interact with other people. Biblical humility is necessary to enter the kingdom of God, and biblical humility is necessary to be great in the kingdom of God. I would go so far as to say that humility is the highest grace that can be the part of the character of a believer. And our humility gets tested when we feel called to serve and then somebody treats us as servants. We talk about having a servant mentality until we're actually called to put that into practice and be a servant and be treated like a servant sometimes by the people who are around us. But Jesus talked about that when The mother of the disciples came and wanted an elevated position for her sons. And Jesus made it clear that if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, then you have to be last. If you want to serve him, then you have to put yourself in the position of a servant. And how different is that than how so many people in the world operate and how we portray ourselves even? I read an article of all things uh, recently in the New York Times that was observing how humility is not what it used to be. As a matter of fact, they said it may be the opposite of what it used to be. Listen to how they they, uh, communicated it. It said, lately it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded. Prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, like copped, and thumb upped. Diving at random into the internet and social media finds this new humility everywhere. An actress on tour is humbled by the outpouring of love from her fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Uh, And athletes are humbled by their good days on the field. Volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and their holiday spirit. And yet none of these people sound very humbled at all. On the contrary, they all seem exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. When did humility get so vain glorious? You know, an area that I see this in in Christianity is how many people have perfected the humble brag. Now, this is an art. If you're in the online world at all, you know what I'm talking about. I am so humbled to be in this position to be used by God. I am so humbled to do this certain thing. 
And I often wonder, I can't judge anybody's motivations, but I'm thinking, are they humbled to be doing it? Or are they just saying this in a way that everybody else will tell them how humble and honored they are? You see the backwardness of this? So we got to be careful about it because it, it sneaks in and it can be something that we didn't intend for it to be. Mary's humility is a genuine humility and her humility is similar to the humility that we find in Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now she knew, according to what she says here in these verses in this song, that the generations that would follow would call her blessed. She knew that she would be called blessed because of the great things that God had done for her. So yes, we should recognize how God in his grace and mercy chose to use this humble young woman to birth the Son of God, the incarnation into the world. But we should never put ourselves in a position where Mary is elevated to a position of worship. Now this too is fairly common around the world. Through Roman Catholics and others who have taken the focus on Mary to an unbiblical level, they will claim, if you ask the direct question, that they do not worship her, but they instead venerate her, uh, meaning to regard with respect or reverence. But the problem is, nowhere in the Bible are we told to revere or worship anyone except God alone. We should honor Mary as the earthly mother of Jesus. Yes, she was highly favored by God, but we do not bow down to or worship anything other than God. We do not pray to her so that she would intercede for us. She is not our co-redemptor in any measure. She is simply a humble person that God chose to use We've got to be careful of these types of unbiblical practices. I saw this in living color in central Mexico. Some of you have traveled there. We see this in South America as well, where Mary is elevated to a position of worship. But I saw it very strongly in central Mexico. There's a temple, or not a temple, but a church, or a Catholic church, um, in the state of Jalisco, not too far from Guadalajara. And in this church... Uh, it's estimated that somewhere between two and three million pilgrims come every January and February to worship. And the people gather there, and in the front and center of this church is this massively constructed Mary with this big glass dome over her, and she is the center focus. Now, Jesus and an image of him being crucified on the cross is just as you come in the door of the church on your left. But bear in mind, I'm talking about uh, probably 250 feet from that to where Mary is front and center at the front of this church. So people will come in and they will make their way. Many of them will actually crawl on their hands and knees until they get to Mary. And then they will pray and they will do their rituals and they will go through their uh, different acts of worship. But then listen to this. They will not stand up and turn around and walk back up the same aisle that they came. They will stay on their hands and their knees, and they will crawl out backwards. Saw it with my own eyes. They will crawl out backwards because they do not want to turn their back on this Mary that's front and center. Now, let me just tell you, that is not what Mary was talking about here. That is not what she was trying to say. She's trying to show us 
the glory of our great God. And in verse 49, it says, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. So the Lord is magnified with a song of surrender. Third, the Lord is magnified with a song of strength. Verse 49 says, for he who has mighty is mighty has done great things. Now this, this term, uh, the mighty one or he who is mighty doesn't appear anywhere else in the same form in the New Testament. But interestingly, it appears twice in the Old Testament in this form, in Zephaniah and also in Isaiah. It has messianic overtones in that God is the one who is all-powerful, holy is his name, and God's power would be demonstrated most clearly through the sending of his Son. There's a lot of different ways that we see the power of God. We get a glimpse into the power of God in creation. Psalm 95 and verse 4 says, In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. We get a glimpse of the strength of God and how he works on behalf of his people. Here in Mary's song, in verse 50, it speaks of the mercy of God is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So we see God's strength in his sovereign mercy. And there's only one reason why Abraham became the father of the faith. It was the sovereign will of God. Who else had the power to call him out of a pagan and idolatrous background? Who else has the power to call people out of the darkness and out of the grip and out of the slavery of sin except God himself? He's the only one. And God's strength is shown in his covenant mercy. You understand that God always keeps his promises? I love saying that over and over again because it's still true. We look to the past and we see what God has done, and that's our foundation. We've got a rock-solid foundation. It's built on the Word of God. It's built on the work of God in the world. And as we look to the future and we sing songs about heaven and we sing songs about the hope that we have, we're standing on a strong foundation and we're anticipating the future because God is a strong God whose Word always comes to pass. And He can be trusted. And I think it's interesting here that the first part of Mary's hymn referred to the great things God had done on behalf of Mary. The second part points to a prophetic look at the results of the ministry of the Messiah for believers. So he's talking not just about the past, but he's talking about the future. And according to verse 51, he has shown his great strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. When you see that phrase in scripture, the arm of the Lord or the strong arm of the Lord, that's referring to God's rule and reign over all things, his power to bring to pass what he's promised. He attacks the proud and he scatters them, but he pays careful, loving attention to the humble. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted the lowly. But I tell you where we get the clearest glimpse into the power of God and the strength of God 
That's in the finished work of Jesus. Remember I told you that the birth of Jesus wasn't the end. That was the beginning of what Jesus would do for us for our redemption. And it would be through the cross when he would offer up himself, the sinless Lamb of God, on behalf of sinners. They would be buried in a borrowed tomb. They would be raised from the dead on the third day. And that resurrection power shows us just how strong God is. Listen how Paul put it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let me translate that for you. The reason that you have spiritual life is because of Jesus Christ who lived and died and now lives again. And he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you. And because Christ is alive, we too have life everlasting. And I think what's really important for us to see about this whole account of the incarnation is that in Jesus, the Lord would turn everything upside down that the world valued. He would dethrone the mighty, and he would be exalted over all. What does the world really value in all of their faux humility? Power, prominence, possessions, pleasure. These are the things that the world tells you you must chase after. Young people, this is constantly put into your mind. This is the worldview that saturates all of your thinking, that you've got to go after everything that the world has to offer. But if you go after everything that the world has to offer and you forfeit your own soul, you have gained nothing. You've gained nothing. But if you yield yourself under the mighty hand of God and, and you come to him and surrender to his strength, then you have gained everything. And this is the message of Jesus. It's all been turned upside down. And we're not to live as the world lives. We're to pursue God and all that he has for us. And we get a glimpse of the strength of God and how he provides for us even in the most practical areas of life. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. And the Lord is magnified with a song of strength. So I ask you this question as we come toward a close today together. Does the song of your life magnify the Lord? See, everybody's life is singing a song. You're dancing to the tune of something. It just depends on what that song is that's playing. Is the song of your life selfish, self-motivated, temporary, all based on what you want, or is the song of your life like it was for Mary, a humble, surrendered song to God, recognizing that he's the one who should be first. See, the message of the incarnation challenges our priorities. What do you really value? What matters to you? What are you pursuing in life? What are you going after with the energies and the gifts and the abilities that God has given you? What is truly of first and primary importance in your life? Is it the Lord? Or is it all this other stuff that's not going to last? 
And if the song of my life and the song of your life is magnifying the Lord, we're going to bear witness to all that God has done for us and who God can be to those who don't yet know him. This is Mary's song. I close with this short excerpt from Daily Devotions for Advent by Nancy Guthrie. She explores in this the concept of what it means to magnify God, and here's what she says. The truth is we can never fully take in or understand God's greatness, but we can magnify him. We magnify God not by making him bigger than he truly is, but by making him greater in our thoughts, greater in our affections, greater in our memories, and greater in our expectations. We magnify him by having higher, larger, and truer thoughts of God. We magnify him by praising him and telling others about his greatness so that they too can have bigger thoughts of God. May all of our lives magnify the Lord and may the song that we're singing be in tune with the song the Lord has sung over us. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment. Here in just a moment, uh, Pastor Eric's going to come and sing with us. It's a straightforward song of asking Jesus to be at the very center of our lives, to be the number one priority. We're going to sing that together through uh, two or three times. We'll not be here long. But now's the time of your opportunity to respond. First of all, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a question for you. Uh, this, this last question that I posed, uh, what does that look like? Are you, are you singing a song that magnifies the Lord? There may be some areas of your life that need to be realigned, readjusted, reoriented toward God and his glory. God brings some of those things to mind in these moments. Would you just pray and ask him to help you? But maybe there's somebody here today who doesn't know Jesus. You've not received the best gift of all, the eternal gift of Jesus, the Son of God. And you can come to him by faith. I invite you to come as we begin to sing. I'll be here to receive you. I'll pray for you. I'll help you. I'll answer any questions that you have. First part of December, we're going to have a believer's baptism again. If you know the Lord, have you been baptized in believer's baptism? If not, now's your opportunity. What a what a time of worship it would be during the Christmas season just to say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. We invite you to come and just say, Pastor, I, I need to be baptized, and I want to be baptized that next opportunity. Father, we're grateful today for Mary's song to you. God, may our lives be consistent with who you are as we're reminded of your greatness and your glory, your strength. And I pray that we would be genuinely humbled in your sight, not exalting ourselves, but exalting you in all that we do. You, Jesus, must increase, but we must decrease. May it be so. I pray now of their decisions that need to be made in this closing time that people would come as we, as we close out our time together and that you'd be honored and exalted through all the steps of obedience and faith that are taken. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.